Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Bart and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's a show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning into the show and I hope you enjoy it. This week's guest is director, filmmaker, creative, surfer and all-round worker bee, Mikey Corker. Mikey's one of those people who seems to know everybody and everybody who knows him seems to greatly admire him, which I think is telling. And I think you can always get a measure of somebody by the way they treat people they first meet. Um, and I remember well meeting Mikey on Croyd Beach for the first time with our mutual pals, James Stenford and Bucko, and realising how warm and welcoming he was then. And he's been the same ever since, whenever we bump into each other at various industry things over the years, or if I'm down in Devon. Um, and I've been following what Mikey's been up to on the gram with interest for quite a few years now and it's quite a tale this on many levels first up it's about his new film savage waters and which is a quest based flick in the finest surf exploration tradition i'm not going to give too much away because part of the pleasure of savage waters is watching this mystery unfold and seeing this quest undertaken in real time but it is a quest don't think that's uh too much to to use that word even if that's for the third time in one paragraph it's about looking for a wave and it's really about looking for a corner of solitude in the world and among the ever more crowded lineups we're all battling with these days but there's a lot more to it than that um, even though that aspect of it is really good and um, you know of interest on, on its own because um, there's a couple of other layers to this it's a look at the realities of life as a top pro surfer thanks to the Cotty subplot, which um, comprises part of the film. It's also a homage to the incredible Knight family, especially Matt and Suzanne, a group of highly inspirational people who've chosen to live life on their own terms. And this film is really a celebration of that. And I defy you not to want to jack it all in and buy a yacht when you watch this, because that's certainly what I was starting to, to think about. But perhaps even more so, and here's the final layer, this is the story of Mikey's own creative quest, which has taken him literally years of experience, dreaming, scheming, planning, hustling, making, and now selling to come to fruition. And I think that's the best way of listening to this one, personally. Because as you'll hear, Mikey, he had an idea, but he really didn't have a solid plan. He just had this idea and he had the confidence to follow it through to its conclusion. And it's a point worth remembering because really it's the reality of most creative projects however big or small however ambitious or localized when it comes down to it no one gives you permission gates don't mysteriously swing open in recognition of your devilish clever cleverness and latent talent as we talk about quite often on here and as i've explored in various um dispatches of my newsletter over the last year you do have to make it happen yourself and you do have to be ready to accept any bump in the road you encounter along the way as they say, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And that's why I wanted to chat to Mikey about Savage Waters. And that's why as the film makes its way around the world, it's so gratifying to see his vision and hard work pay off in the form of recognition, vindication, and presumably the contentment that comes when you've had a good idea and you've thrown absolutely everything at it to make it a reality. There's a lesson in there for us all, I'd say. So I'll leave, you, I'll leave it with you for now. I'll be back at the end. But here's me and Mikey. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
right, we're rolling. Um, yeah, this is what I always do. I always basically sort of, before we start recording, ask people questions and I'm like, press record. <laughs> it's the same with filming interviews. Hello, Peg. Peg's come to join us. Hello, Peggy. <laughs> Hello, Peg. Peg, this is Mikey. Hey, Peg. <laughs> Guest appearance. Well, good to see you. So you're on, you're on a hectic one. So you have got, like, I mean, the first question. This week must feel pretty special. Culmination of a lot of work. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's it's kind of surreal um, to be sort of on the eve of a of a of the release of our film because you know we started six years ago and I, and you know the, there was quite a big section of time where I didn't even know if we'd finished this film. It's, we've gone the whole journey of making the film has been sort of a lot of ups and downs. So yeah, it does it does feel like a special moment? As in from creative idea to like raising the money to making it because obviously it's a it's a mission itself like filming the project but the the, the whole filmmaking process behind it is that has that been because you just before we started recording you're like i've learned a lot it's been an education in the kind of business side of this really like and from the outside that's sort of what it seemed like a bit you know like it like you say six years a lot of different iterations a lot of different parts to it is that is that been part of the whole sort of thing for you like getting your head around all these different stages yeah 100 percent. i mean we started off with pretty much almost no money so we didn't we, we hadn't sold this big idea to anyone we started off um somebody gave us a little bit of money to start up uh to start up the project which we put into a kitty at the very beginning we decided no no um it was i would say it was a, sort of a three-way agreement between uh, Matt Knight, Andrew Cotton and myself, we were, the, we, we sort of, we looked at it as a three-way split and um, we put the money into a kitty. We just said, none of us are going to make any money out of this. We, it was just a little bit of startup fund, but we're going to cover our costs. We're going to start shooting something. Right. This is at the start. Then. This is at the very start. Matt had come to us with this idea. Matt had told us about this book he was given. He was like, t- as Matt always is, just yeah. super enthusiastic as he was explaining about this book he had read that was published in 1892 that was given by his friend. Oh, just for a bit of context, um, when Matt was given this book, Matt, Katia and myself were working on another project for Red Bull, and, um, and, and which involved being on the boat, exploring off the coast of Ireland. And while we were on that project, Matt was given this book. And so he had started planting these seeds right. back in that time and saying, well, you know, next one, next one, I've, I've been given this book and I, I really think we should go out and make this film. And just as soon as you start hearing Matt talk about it, it's like, oh my God, like we have to go do this. It yeah. just sounded like it, everything he was saying was just, it was just like feature film material. So we got the Red Bull project done and delivered. And um, and I won't go into too many details ar- around that film, but let's just say I learned a lot about the sort of, you know, the business side of filmmaking. Right. As uh, in, when uh, you get shafted, when you lose your money. <laughs> <laughs> to every, if there's any other sort of aspiring filmmaker out there, all I can say is get your contract signed before you start rolling the camera. Right. Right. So, okay. You know, it was it was there were some good lessons in there for me as a filmmaker, and I needed to learn them at some point. And yeah, um, you know, this whole process is a is the, it's a constant sort of learning process. So if it's not about contracts, it's going to be about something else. Yeah. You know. So um. Anyway, it's all good, and we so we we decided we we delivered the project to Red Bull, and um, 
and and we so we had this idea we were all really excited about and then um Koti had had a conversation and, and like a lot of these projects have strange beginnings but yeah. um Koti had had a sort of it was one of those like late night conversations with a with a really um really amazing person Maya Norman um yeah, it was like one of those you know in in a bar kind of conversations and he told her about this project she was like she was just really inquisitive because she she's um she's a supports the arts you know she's a patron of many artists and she surfs and she's a real adventure person and he told her about this project that we'd been discussing with Matt and it straight away lit a fire in her and she was like I want I want you guys to make this film I'm going to give you a little bit of startup fund I don't expect anything in return just you know just see what you can do right so we so we decided our plan at that point was to use her money that she'd given us to go out and shoot what um, content for a teaser we knew it was, wasn't going to be enough for the film we had in mind right but we had to start and there's 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 kind of from what i can sort of understand there's there's different ways to go about starting a film one is you sell the idea and, yeah and you you, you secure <clears throat> your finance and you don't start shooting until all the money like, like the elevator pitch the classic sort of like you know like like you imagine it hollywood sort of thing go in like right here's the idea right here's somebody go make it but that wasn't how it was for you no we yeah. d- we never we, we we only had this um startup fund um and and so we we were like well you know fuck, let's just go and do it let's because actually at the time I thought, well, the worst case scenario is I'm going to have the best time of my life yeah. with people I love on a boat. It, the, the the worst case scenario seemed like a good option to me. Did it? Did it get? So it's been six years of that, though. That so was you, 2016. So, you, so we're 2022 now. So yeah, six years. See, so see, so you you had your bit of money you both put in, then you meet Maya. Did you say? And we she, we didn't put any of our money in. We we just we were we were all gonna put our time in. None of us had any money to put in. But as in, like you know, rather than get paid, we'll yeah. we'll, we'll invest our time. We, we kind of all blocked out three months. Yeah. Okay. We decided we we all committed to give three months of time for initial block of shooting. Yeah. Okay. Which is quite a long time in the world of production. Yeah. Right. But we needed to. Well, the boat was in the UK. We had to get the boat down to Madeira and um and we had to be on standby because we we're waiting for weather and waves so a yeah. lot of that three months was downtime it's a waiting period basically. it's a waiting period yeah and and it's just because of the nature of what we're shooting it just takes time it's yeah. not a fly in fly out situation just moving a boat can take days well it's it's ambitious for us you know for because the thing that struck me about it is it's a surf film obviously but it's also a quest film you know there's like the literary angle to it which is great which i'd like to talk about a bit more it's also like a real celebration of of the knight's family and relationships which is really beautiful part of it you know it's a really strong like look at this amazing group of people there's also like the kind of devon surf culture aspect to it which you've been like massively involved in for years now and which those guys are all like really involved in so it's got all these different layers to it hasn't it yeah, which, which take it beyond a surf film. So I guess my question is, mm. did did those aspects to it evolve as you went through this process of making it over six years? Did you did you start to think, oh right, there's another theme, there's another theme that we can start bringing in? A hundred percent. I I heard a saying recently which really resonated with me, which was, um, if you make the film you set out to make, you haven't made a very good film. Right. And. And I think uh, the film that we ended up making is so far from the film I thought we we were going to make in the beginning. Yeah. 
I kind of got that impression just from just from seeing it and then knowing a bit about what's been going on in the background, which is why I was really interested in like the evolution of it creatively. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things uh, that really sort of steered the direction of the film and took it off on a kind of new path, which I hadn't anticipated, was um, while we were shooting, Matt had been telling me about this box of tapes that he had been uh, that he had, was sort of stored in his attic. Um, that he that him and his family had shot during their adventures when the before a before the kids were born and then when the kids were young because they went on crazy adventures as a young family um matt matt and suzanne took the kids out of school they went traveling around um the americas um america and central america in a bus that they bought out this clapped out rv and but they they shot the whole thing on this uh DV8 camera or something. Yeah, and that fo- some of that footage is brilliant. It's so good, and and the kids shot a lot of it. So their commentary is just so beautiful. It's like, like proper late 80s, early 90s home movie stuff, isn't it's it? It's so good. Yeah. And so Matt had mentioned this footage, but it hadn't been digitized. He, and he was a bit like, oh, I've got this box of tapes. Like, you know, we'll dig it out at some point. And then we got into the edit. It was only like later, like when we were writing the edit, I think I'd said to Matt, Ah, oh, you know, those tapes, and like, got to dig out those tapes. I get them digitized and. I sent them off to be digitized and when I got the footage back and started looking, I was like, Oh my god, this is gold. And now for me it's 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 for me it adds like a real layer to the story. It real sho- it shows you kind of the progression of these characters. It shows you that yeah. what they're doing now, you can see how what what shaped them in the past to lead to where they are now. And it's just it's just really amazing footage. So so that was a huge thing that sort of added a, a layer and an angle that I hadn't preempted. Yeah. And another another thing is to be honest, like I actually think real hardcore surfers who are looking for just a surf hit, maybe it's may maybe a little bit disappointed because we have I haven't tried to make I would like to think That's this, not the film though, is it? I would like to think it isn't a surf film, but some people might think differently and, and it'll be um, everyone's gonna have their own interpretation of what a surf film is. But in the beginning when we started, I was very much more focused on trying to make a surf film and it was all about like perfect waves and these sequence, you know, these sequences. But as you kind of get into the process, you realize that that is so irrelevant when you're dealing with, when you've, when you're surrounded by people who are doing inspiring things, the stories that happened were things we could never prepare ourselves for the, the things that happened to our characters, which at the time I thought was derailing the project or the project became, irrelevant in the in in light of the bigger things i mean andrew cotton broke his back yeah that was halfway through wasn't it suzanne got cancer right and and this is so at the time the project was like put on the shelf yeah and it was like oh, we were we had no idea no one was thinking about it It just wasn't important yeah compared to these other things i'd had babies so i was like you know everyone is just life happened. Own, life was happening to everyone <laughs> yeah. and uh and now the, these are the, probably the, the most important elements of the film that have totally shaped the story. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. And I think that whole evolution, what, one thing I've learned as a documentary filmmaker is you have to embrace it. Well, that's what I was going to say because the other thing that struck me about about the film watching it is for you, it seems almost like as a creative and a filmmaker, a real culmination of what you've been doing through your career. Because, you know, you've, you you do commercial stuff. You you do creative stuff you do a mix like you you've been you've you've plotted a path to make a living in the industry with a really nice balance it seems to me of both of those things which is what you have to do if you're going to earn any money and actually try and do this full time but this is obviously like a different level entirely like this is a truly ambitious creative project so was it was it the sort of 
project you've been looking for the culmination do you know what i mean like yeah. the chance to sort of put all these things that you've been all these experiences all this work experience to sort of put it into one big project yeah um uh, it definitely this project is a combination and and a uh, and an evolution of everything i've done in the past and i think probably a lot of filmmakers will agree uh excuse me is I think every project I see as a stepping stone. I always want to make something better than what I've what I've made before. I yeah. always want to kind of push. I never. Uh, I always want to kind of feel like I'm um, pushing myself to 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 shoot something. I mean, I look at stuff I did even a couple of years ago and I cringe. I'm like, oh god, if I could do that again. And and I, even I look at Savage Waters now, and it, even though it hasn't come out, I would do things differently. But I think that's just part of it. Every creative has that 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 sort of self analysis or or kind of level of interrogation where you look at what you're doing and you want to push it forward but this project i mean a because of the scale i hadn't dealt worked on anything on the scale over time uh, you know this period of time with this budget with so many moving parts um so it's it wasn't just a challenge from a production level straight up like how am i capturing the story on the day there's a lot of other sort of challenges to think about in the process of making the film can you describe some of them um, like creative challenges well, creative challenges definitely, uh, I would say, in the edit, because um, sometimes you get into you, you you need a you need to put a scene together, and you realize, oh well, fuck, I didn't get this one really important shot, yeah, or something like that. And I mean, I've had, we've had a really good editor. I've got a really good editor on this project, Jordan Montmany, and he's just an absolute miracle worker. He's you know he's really kind of <laughs> saved me. Right. I, I, I owe this project to Jordan, to be honest. Like. You know, and and so just working with a really talented editor who creatively can solve narrative riddles when you might not always have the coverage. So that's really interesting. So that that's a, so that's somebody that you've collaborated with post production, obviously. Mm. And how how much of an influence, or how how much did it evolve in that part of the process? Then did you? Because presumably you you go into that with like okay, start middle end. Here's where I want to get to. But then, so then there was there, there were solutions that suggest itself to improve as you went. Yeah. So I I, I took a decision right early on that um, I wanted this, this whole project to be collaborative. Yeah. May, <laughs> I say I took a decision early on. I was probably like, I'm shit scared, and I need people <laughs> to help me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, I, I'm not wrong with that. <laughs> so. Um, and, but I actually hadn't worked with Jordan before, and it was you know. Um, he came recommended through the post-production house we worked with in Ireland called Play Playhouse Studios. Right. But we had a few chats early on and I could tell straight away we connected on a human level. I just immediately felt like we were on the same page. Yeah. I didn't pick up, there, there wasn't any panic about him. He knew that it was my first feature length documentary. So he kind of was expecting there to be certain issues which maybe I hadn't even preempted but he could see. Really? Yeah, just it, mostly around coverage. Right. Because, you know, especially we wanted this to be ver a verite focused piece. Yeah. I didn't want to, I wanted to kind of rely on interviews and a retrospective kind of narrative as little as possible. I wanted, you know, I want the viewer to be living in the moment on the boat, looking over the shoulder. Yeah. Being there on the adventure. But, you know, my, my I would say my filmmaking has progressed since 2016. So sure. in the beginning, I, I w maybe I wasn't as sort of thinking about things like I, I would be towards the back end of the, you know towards the the end of the project where i was way more experienced 
So there are some scenes that we shot in the beginning. And I look at it now and I'm like, oh god, oh, right. I can't believe I didn't get certain, you know, certain shots. And yeah, Jordan had to kind of work out how we're gonna sort of tell the, you know, sort of depict those scenes and and still keep them exciting and engaging and compelling and all that stuff. So, but I, I decided early on that I'm really gonna lean on on Jordan and uh, we had a um, a story consultant, Nick Gatridge. Yeah. And between Jordan and Nick and myself, it was just it was a really beautiful collaborative experience and you said that you've not even nick right you've not even met nick you can meet nick tonight we've been doing this whole process this whole project or all the back end you know all the post productions happened through the thick of covid yeah right so we've all been working Just remotely to add another challenge <laughs> yeah and we, we actually actually still do a lot of traveling shooting shooting through covid but that's a whole another story but um but i actually really loved working with nick and jordan because what they brought was experience it was really nice to work with three creatives because it's a nice number because because every, the the truth is with a creative task there's no one right way to do it yeah it's only what you think but these guys are super experienced especially in the doc feature sphere yeah so if i was unsure about something i could bounce it off both and usually they would often be on the same page yeah but we had a we I th i'd say we had an environment where everybody could speak their mind at the end of the day, the final creative decision was always in my, my hands, which yeah. everybody totally respected. But, you know, but nobody was scared to push back and really say honestly how they f they feel. And and most most times I would just go, you got that's why you're here. That's why we're having this conversation. Yeah, it's difficult for me to say yes, but I'm going to go with it because I trust you. Yeah, and I'm and I'm glad I did. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's funny. There's some scenes that I thought we were going to absolutely make the film that we had to cut, and now I'm glad we did. And that was on the suggestion of either Jordan or Nick. And actually, Jordan pushed for more surfing in the film than I than I would have put in. Right. And he doesn't surf. Yeah. And I'm glad he did. Yeah, it's so common that, isn't it? Like the, well, there's a lot of letting go your ego involved in all that, isn't there? Which takes a confidence, I think, in in if you you know if you're going to go into a creative project and collaborate in the way that you're talking about you do need to have the confidence to let other people make decisions that you might not agree with and that that is really actually quite difficult isn't it it doesn't matter how well-rounded you are once you get into it because especially when it's so personal for you this whole thing there can be a bit of like no i'm right that's got to be in there so how how did you cope with that was that something that you that you you found you got better at or have you always been quite good at that sort of collaborative process no I, I think I've had to work on it um but if you if you look at both Nick and Jordan's credentials I knew straight away these guys I can trust yeah and let, they, them, do, they, let them do what they're good at let them do what they're good at the success they're they're on board they want this project to be a success as much as I do yeah they also know the audience which is outside of the surf audience they know the mainstream audience they know the people that we we would like this to really hit home with yeah they understand that that audience and so actually they're the keeping their eye on a story then they're, they're like that's what they're trying to do in in that part of the process they're basically the ones that are keeping their eye on this sort of broader story with appeal like, exactly yeah yeah so so nick i mean as a story consultant he's got a really interesting job nick can break down a story the challenge with a director, especially a director who shoots, because I shot a lot of this myself, is that, and these are my friends. Yeah. So, you know, Matt and, and Katia, these are people that I've known f f as friends way before we started shooting together. So I've got this deep emotional connection with them. 
So I'm attached to everything. Yeah. Everything I shoot, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This yeah, is special. Yeah. And when you get in, going in. <laughs> <laughs> so when you get into the edit, you you have these emotional attachments to to all your footage, and you've also built up these connections, or you bridge you bridge pieces of information because it's so programmed into your head that things are obvious. Yeah. But to an outsider, they're not, or they're completely irrelevant. Yeah. And having people that are not connected is it's really refreshing because they can come in with like you know an axe and just go this whole section that you think's amazing it's rubbish get it out get it it's it's not helping the story it's yeah. not pushing the story forward you need kill, something else kill your babies kill your babies and yeah. even because i'm i'm sort of wearing two hats i'm the director and the cinematographer so sometimes they'll be like these shots over here we we need these because they, these carry you know they carry more truth they're more yeah. important to the story but i'll be looking at things like the framing or the color or Something like, oh, they're they horrible. I yeah. want to use those, but they, <laughs> you know, but they're like, it's important for the story. So you kind of, it's a bit of a dance, but you kind of got to go, okay, like, you, you understand story. Like yeah. You, that's why you're here. That's why we're having this conversation. And I need to just learn, actually, and just li listen. And I'm, I'm so glad I did. Like, it was actually probably in terms of the whole process, other than spending the time on the boat with Matt and Cotty and, Suzanne and everyone, which is amazing, but just in terms of more, say, on the post-production side, having the experience I had with them, for me, was probably one of the highlights. Yeah, well, it's an education, isn't it? You know, if you're working with experts like, like you, you know, experienced people that know the business like you're talking about, you just you just got to know when to... It's another part of being creative, isn't it? You got to know when to listen. You yeah. Got, you got to know when you're being given good advice. You got to know when you've been given good advice. And when I look at the film now, I think that it's, it's, and I say this to Jordan all the time. I, I just say this is, film is way better than I could have imagined it. And it was because of the input of yeah. people like him and Nick. I couldn't, I, I've only got a certain amount of experience and skills and whatever. I, my brain can only stretch so far. Yeah. But when you connect all these extra hard drives, you've got a supercomputer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But again, it's, professionals know that don't they do you know what i mean like you don't you don't find people making big budget productions getting precious about feedback yeah no <laughs> you, know, you can't like, you can't do it you just got you, that's part of being a professional understanding like when to listen when not to you know let your opinion get in the way so i totally get that and you know one of the themes even while we've been talking now that's obviously coming out is like your kind of thirst for this stuff like to get better as a, as a just purely selfishly individually as a creative obviously you want to stretch yourself don't you and you want to try things and and that's that's how you're going to learn yeah i mean for me the i, I i've done a lot of jobs in my life in the past what's the worst uh, putting pineapples into a machine that would, <laughs> <laughs> that would, that would take the skin off and take the the core out the middle and stick them in a can. I did a I did a night at a factory when I was a student where at a donut factory and all I had to do was like shift boxes of donuts from one conveyor belt to another <laughs> <laughs> with like one hand. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, one night. There you go. Yeah. yeah, I've done I've done so many you know arbitrary manual jobs and I, you know I'm not gonna say anything bad about them because at the time I, I quite loved them and they served a purpose and you know uh but i also you know everyone's some people just like to have a job where you can just mentally switch off and you just you know push that donut box whatever <laughs> but I, I remember th for a lot of you know jobs that i've done pushing wheelbarrows around a building site or whatever i'd be just really thinking about 
my brain, I was, I was feeling like my creative brain was just rotting away. And, yeah. and I was like, and I knew at some point, like I need, you know, I need to kind of have creative projects and projects that really inspire and life's short. I want to be doing stuff that I wanna, I'm waking, I'm excited to do. I want to wake up and go, fuck, I'm doing this. Like, and be, it's not, you know, just be really um, ins- inspired and um, excited about what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it's life's short. I mean, I, I just couldn't imagine wanting to do anything else. So, and the cool thing with filmmaking for me is that it, it's a constant challenge. It's a constant evolution. Like I'm always feeling like I've just starting. Yeah. And even though like I think, oh, well, a few years ago I was like, I knew that and now I'm doing this. But, you know, I think it's just a constant process. And I just, yeah, I just want to keep on improving. And I think it's never ending because, you know, there's the, the camera side of it. There's the lighting side of it. There's the there's the human side, just dealing with people, just understanding, reading a situation. Yeah. Like I'm drawn to Verite, which is what I've been shooting a lot in the last couple of years. I've also been shooting on the HBO series Hundred Foot Wave, which yeah. just finished season three. Yeah, yeah. Which is Verite driven. So it's, it's when you say Verite for people that listen that might not know that that phrase word, like how do you define that? It's a French term, it means truth cinema. So the idea is that you are you capturing a, you you being very truthful about what you capture. You're not directing a scene. The only control you have over a scene really is where you put your camera. Yeah. Where you position yourself. It's like an impressionistic approach to filmmaking where you're basically trying to get an honest picture of the scene. An as, honest as picture. It takes place. You're not directing anything. You're not telling people what to say. You're not scripting anything. You're just capturing a scene as it unfolds. Yeah. It's 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 with people. It's it's a, it's a very it's a people you know, people are your subjects. And you so it's a very tough form of filmmaking. I actually think it's the hardest because if you really want to be true to the art, you're not going to ask people to repeat things because you missed them or your angle wasn't good or yeah. you, 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 want, you want to fade into the background. You want people to forget that you're there. And it's tough. The reality is as soon as you bring a camera into, into a scene, into a room, whatever, people are aware of it. No matter how much you try and you know hide in the, the background, people are going to be aware. And people often have a, a radio mic on. And as soon as you put that radio mic on, the dynamic changes. Yeah. People do forget over time, whatever, but it, you are messing with the reality of a scene by being there. That's the truth. But the but the moments that I'm looking for are the little moments when people, it's like the, the truthful, truthful bits. Almost sometimes when people think they're, they're not being recorded, you know, you go, okay, thank you, we got that. And then you, you start putting the camera down. Sometimes I get my best stuff when the camera's on the floor. Oh, well, I, the amount of times I've done an interview on here... And then we turn it off and then we talk for an hour afterwards. <laughs> and I'm like, that would have been really good. That would have been really good. No, I've learned. I, 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 I tape up because my cameras have got little lights to tell you when you're being recorded. Yeah. So you I tape, tape them up. all up. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, one of the things that I do on here, which I've talked about in this kind of, not lecture, but I've been doing this talk for businesses about like, uh, you know, using the podcast as a way of getting into storytelling. And yeah, one of the one of the very easy tricks is just press record and don't tell people we've started, you know, and just go like, "What do you what do you have for your tea last night?" You know, and then they just they just start talking naturally, don't they? And yeah. Then can, and then you can get into it, you know. And then they're like twenty minutes in, "Oh, we're recording." Like there you go. That's that's just it's just like like you say, like making people forget it's a performance in a way, which is actually quite hard, isn't it? Really, it's, it's hard. Also. The truth is, I'm often looking for something. I, I think I'm going, especially in a scene. Like you do have to have a bit of a an objective. Yeah. You know, and then what happens is going to transpire no matter what. You can't predict what people are going to say. But there is a, you know, I say it's truth cinema, but maybe I'm maybe maybe there's a contradiction there because I'm often I have an idea of what I'm trying to achieve, 
And then I guess it's a combination of you, you kind of go into a situation going, okay, I want to achieve this, but you have to allow that room for whatever's going to happen is yeah. going to happen. And often the beauty or the best bit is going to be from the stuff you couldn't even imagine. Do you, so in this process of making this film, did you recognize that you were getting better at that, that separation that you're talking about? Because obviously what you're talking about is like this kind of tension between trying to capture the scene honestly while also trying to send a story along aren't you you know so, so presumably when you're going through this process there's parts of you that are like that's great for the story say more of that but then at that point you you kind of not being that honest because you're interfering so did you did you notice that you could improve that like as it went you got a bit more bit more in the background almost yeah it's a it, I, I definitely did but because it was a six-year process so it, you know i was just, i guess it's part of the natural evolution of yeah. doing something consistently for a period of time you're gonna get better and a lot of it is a, it's like a, a intuition yeah and the more you do something the more intuitive you get with it yeah in a sense you know when to maybe prod and you know when to sort of step back and it's that i guess it's that sort of balance sometimes you're prodding because you need somebody to give you a little bit of context like yeah. somebody's walking down the road i wonder where they're going you, you might have to just say can you just explain to me where you're going yeah and then step back yeah yeah because you know you might need it later and sometimes you know okay i mustn't say a thing now yeah this is my time to step back so yeah. it's that little you know do i prod do i step back do i prod do i step back and just and just but the more you do it the more you kind of like work out at which point you should be doing one of, one of those one of those two things wait, wait, doing it with friends is it harder because you've got that trust um it's easier and it's harder because the trusting is great and they trust you but then you could abuse that you can abuse that, which is, and it's easy territory to get into. Yeah, and um, you know what I mean. Like it's quite no, it's 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 re it's actually really hard, and it's also harder to be really brutal. Yeah, and sometimes it is. It can be a brut a brutal process. Yeah, and you know the the truth is, I, I didn't want to make anything where we glossed over too much. Um. And I kind of wanted to go, you know, kind of go a bit deep on a, a few topics, um, which maybe don't get sort of spoken about too much at, at this point. And you know, one of the one of them is the pressures on professional surfers. And and so in Savage Waters, um, Kati had to deal with us loads through the f film. I mean, he throughout the whole process, Kati was in a he was always in a quandary about whether he should be with us in the boat or go off to Nazareth. Yeah to fulfill his sort of professional Cause obligations. Because I guess, the, I guess being on Hecate is a bit more of a passion project thing that when it's the height of Nazareth season might be a bit more difficult to justify, right? Well, exactly. And um, it's a gamble. Yeah. So he's got a short, a really short winter season. It's a few months long. There's a couple headline swells where he can go, you know, ride a massive wave. That could be, you know, him ticking boxes for five years. Yeah. Cody doesn't have to ride many waves to like have a really successful big wave career. He's just got to ride the right waves. Yeah. It's all about being in the right place at the right time. So when a swell arises, you know, he's got to make a decision. Do I, do I hang out with my mates in the boat on a gamble on this goose chase? Or do I go to Nazareth where I can pretty much put myself in the right position? I know what to do there. I've got everything set up. It's, uh, there's, there's very little gamble there. A lot of the elements are under his control. Um, but we want. I wanted to explore that. I want to explore the pressures. I want to talk about it because it's hard. You know, it's not all rosy. People think, oh, you know, professional athletes, they've got such an easy life. They just get paid to do their job. It's hard. And yeah. he had a massive injury. 
you know, to bounce, to, to, to kind of get through all that stuff and carry on doing it and still putting himself in a situation that I would not even want to go near. And I, <laughs> I surf, but I, you know, I look at Nazare even on a small day and I'm like, I'm scared to be on the beach. It's so heavy. Yeah. You know, I can't even imagine what it takes to want to go back out there after having after what he went he, through. He went, you know, he got taken off in a, on a, in an ambulance, you know, with a broken back. Like, yeah. it's just ridiculous. So a lot of his sort of journey throughout the film is just sort of fighting, the, you know, just sort of feeling torn between wanting to be in Nazareth and wanting to hang out with his friends, you know, and and all of that. And so as a friend and as a filmmaker, I'm like, I'm, I, I'm, I sympathize, but it's also really interesting. Yeah. And it's truthful. It is what he's going through. And so I have to kind of honor that, the process and this, this, this sort of agreement that we've all kind of had in the beginning we're going to go and make a film yeah and we're going to and i want to do it truthfully and this is the difference between documentary and say a lot of branded content or commercial stuff which is all just glossing over and giving it giving the audience a, a sort of one-sided perspective on what they, what these guys do but i really want to kind of go deeper than that i want to kind of like it's kind of more of a warts and all process yeah 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 exactly and like you say you that's why when you know you mentioned earlier like oh well some people might not think there's enough surfing in it and you know like it's not really a classic surf film but there's there's enough of that i mean there's there's so much of that like and if you want if you want that <laughs> knock yourself out <laughs> it's around in it you know what i mean like there's 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 room for something like this which is a bit more kind of curious and exploratory really um so what are you kind of you know you, there's film festivals you've obviously got a kind of production company involved now like you've got it to the point where what how's your distribution looking like what what are your ambitions for it we, um yeah so now we're kind of into the next phase of of the film's life really yeah we've got to um, sell it <laughs> gotta sell it you made it you gotta sell it yeah so we um i'll just rewind a little bit but we had a we had a um, we had somebody come on board uh soon after when when we um there was a point when we basically Koti had come through his injury. This is so a rewind. We're talking about two thousand two thousand and eighteen, I think, roughly. So we had we'd gone out and shot the first um leg of the film. We had got some really good content in the in the can and then um Koti broke his back and Suzango cancer and everyone was distracted. Da, da, da. And almost two years went by and and not not much really happened with the film. It was just sitting there. But one thing I've learned about the nights and Kati is like, once they've sort of locked onto an idea, it's like, they're, they're, you it's know, happening. it's a study and commitment. <laughs> and every time I saw him, I'm like, oh, we've got to finish that film. Finish that. You know, so we, I guess we we're just waiting for the right time. And we were ready. Like we had, we had a really good teaser that as soon as people were, you know, we were putting it out to people. We weren't dormant. We weren't, you know, the footage just wasn't sitting like, yeah, in the you were we good had, at pro promoing it for yeah, sure. So we had a teaser, we had a PDF. So we were ready. We were just, and we, every time any opportunity came along, we were like, hey, check this, you know, we were like pushing it out and we were still being proactive. And I guess, and then, um, then we met, well, Kati introduced us um, through, through his network to a woman, Gislaine, um, who had just finished a career in finance and she was embarking on a new direction going into film production and um she was looking for a project to get on, to to get on board with and um she's got a she's got a sort of a real passion for water based sports she's a long distance swimmer and stuff and um she loved the project da, 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 and she sort of helped us finish it um but she's you know her production through her production company called whipped sea so um so 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 where we're at now is Whipsy 
Matt's job is to sell the film. Yeah. So you got festivals going we, on. So so that so that we've got an agreement with a distribution agent called Abacus Media, and they've got the rights to the film, worldwide rights. They're going to sell it, and we're going to focus on film festivals. We want to get a bit of a buzz gang with film festivals, and you use that to generate interest and sales. And at this point, this is where you're just relying on the reception, aren't you? Really, you know, this is where it could really take on a life of its own. Yeah, and I mean, this is—it's kind of—it's a little bit nerve-wracking as well because it's a how you know well, how the audience gonna. This is the you know this is the litmus test, like how people are gonna react to it. Are they gonna see what? Are they gonna see what we've tried to sell them? You know, or, or try to show them? Are they gonna pick up what you know? You just don't know how it's gonna go. Yeah. But we've got our first premiere on the fifth of May, which is uh, I think about a week away, um, at the Docklands Film Festival in uh, in the US. And they've um, they've given us a, a really good sort of um, opening night screening slot and a and a Q and A afterwards with me and an after party. So they they're giving it um they're giving us really nice exposure and showing right. a, a good spotlight on us. So and their their audience is going to be a lot of um, people that are interested generally in more you know adventure topics. There's a lot of sailing. It's a big sailing community. Yeah. There will be surfing and then just general you know documentary filmmakers. Yeah. Things like that. So it's a great audience for us. Yeah. And we, we're really excited about it. And they're really enthusiastic because suddenly having other people that are starting to see the film and be enthusiastic about it, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about Matt Knight a bit because there's, it's a bit, it's a real sort of homage to Matt, isn't it? This film, you know, like, and I don't, I've met Matt once. Um, I could not claim to know him. I actually met him on Hecate when he was doing the Ross Edgley thing when it when I interviewed Ross Edgley actually it was a brilliant experience actually I interviewed Ross Edgley the night before he finished that swim so we went me and and Toza went on the boat and we did that and then the next day did the swim met Matt really briefly asked him to come on the podcast then he was like yeah 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 cool cool um that I think that was like four years ago um and I think everybody respects Matt so much don't they you know like mutual friend Stenty um whenever his name comes up he's like you know it's really clear like how how respected he is and also it's really clear from the film like just just what a life he's led like so was making this film a bit of a bit of a sort of like tribute to Matt was that was that a key thing because it it really sort of does show a modern day adventure of this film doesn't it really yeah, definitely. I mean, Matt, Matt, and Suzanne, and the whole family. Uh, but well, the the kids, obviously. The kids. I mean, I guess <laughs> small he, matter of those. Uh. <laughs> I mean, you know, but but Suzanne will be the first to admit it. You know, Matt, Matt is the the more adventurous one, and you know, Matt is the driving force behind the adventures. Suzanne agrees to everything, and she's up for everything. Yeah, and she does drive a lot of the adventure, but. I would say it's it's definitely a tribute to Matt and, and his whole family. But Matt Matt is a, you know a real key figure, and he's somebody that I look up to immensely. Yeah, I mean you, you nailed it. Like nobody's got a bad word to say about him. Actually, like the opposite. Yeah. And he's really interesting. He's quite. I've ne- I haven't actually met anyone like Matt where he has the ability to get respect from everyone without trying. And and as a captain of a boat, like you know, uh, you know, he's he just commands respect because he's the captain. Yeah. But he can be re- he can be super. He's the funnest guy ever, and super lighthearted. But he he has this ability to like w- when he 
turns it when, when you know need, when you when, need to stand to attention when he needs to when he needs to and then yeah. there's no denying he's got that authority he's, he's got, got that, the authority yeah. and but he, he he's not authoritarian to the point of he, he doesn't um rule with fear he, he rules with he, compassion he, and love and he respect he wears it lightly and he's one of those people that makes everybody feel special yeah um and he's just, i mean i can't say enough good things about matt he's just He's, he's just the most resourceful, good-natured, positive, amazing human. And, I, like, you know, it's about Matt. Matt makes the story in in so many ways. Well, I, the, the adventure of it really comes across. You know, like, let's... Because I said earlier when we were talking about the different layers and themes to it, I mean, it is an adventure story as well. You know, it's a quest. Like you, And, and we should talk about the source material as well, which obviously drives it. Um, but that really comes across. So on that quest and you mentioned earlier it's like it, i mean it's a book isn't it basically which is like a treasure hunt kind of is that is that the sort of deal with it yeah um so the the original book which was the sort of inspiration for our trip was a treasure hunter's journal which was published in 1892 by an by a british person by a british person and the the sort of coincidence was his surname was knight yeah he was ef knight so this treasure hunter back in you know the 1900s went out on this real-life adventure to go look for this buried treasure on this desert island. Um, and so th- that was Captain E.F. Knight. Uh, and on en route to, while they were looking for this treasure, he stumbled across this wave, which he was just, he was just mesmerized by the beauty. He was actually trying to avoid it. He was describing it. The reason it w- the description was in the book is because he, he, was, he was referring to it as a navigational hazard. He was trying to avoid it. He was picking his way through these reefs, he saw this wave break and he just went past and went, oh my God. Right. Like, and he wrote this really like beautiful description that I mean, it took like three pages and it was amazing. Um, and that was the, that was the genesis. That yeah. Was the, and so there's this, this description of this wave in the book. And so when, you know, fast forward until 2000 and whatever, and Matt's reading this book yeah. that his old sailing friend had given to him because his friend had said, oh, he has a book by an adventurer with the same surname as you. Oh, this will be funny. It's a cool story as well. You should read it. Yeah. Matt's reading it as a cool adventure story and then hits this description of this wave and he's like, whoa, <laughs> that sounds like an amazing wave. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, and just because of where this guy was talking about the original treasure hunter, it just sounded like, you know, a really remote spot. And Matt's up for a challenge. Matt's, I, you know, you just tell Matt something really difficult to do and he'll be like, I want to do that. Because I, I, I was, it sounds such a, punter landlubber thing to say but i i was not expecting it to be there for some reason i because you kept that quite a secret really didn't you like you know it was part of the mystery like when you were trailing it like w- these islands and stuff and i'm not going to say where it is because i think it's worth watching in the film but i was like all oh, right for some reason i thought north like uh, i was just expecting okay, yeah yeah I, I don't know why um <laughs> but it's a real romantic notion that isn't it like this 19th century rant it's a re- it sort of fits in that kind of 19th century like adventure literature like you know all those like daring do stories and all that so it's a really nice device i thought watching it to kind of take that and put it onto a surf kind of modern surf quest really yeah um, and also to use the the narration like and to make the the source material such a crucial part of it was that something that you that I'm guessing that probably evolved as you made the film. Well, that that evolved. Um, just uh, just on that, I mean, you know, for me, Matt, f- 
for me comes more out of the mold of like a Shackleton. Yeah, he he, he fits right in with that era. Yeah, definitely. He, you know, he's more for me. I see Matt. Although he's like, you know, up to date with, you know, the modern era. He's very modern in many ways, but he's also very I tell you what, he doesn't, he doesn't check his Instagram messages that often. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's too, too busy doing fun things. Too busy, but, like, actually yeah. living a real life. And I mean, even <laughs> even his boat, you know, it's it, Hecate, it's a, it's a Warham catamaran. It's held together with rope and it's very, you know, he's he, he does have all the sort of modern navigational equipment like GPS now, but, but Matt can use a sextant. Yeah, Matt can navigate via celestial navigation. He's he's kept he so he's he's like he's he's an interesting guy. He's very analog. You know, if if suddenly the electricity in the world went out, Matt would be one of the survivors. He'd be all right. He would he would be all right. We would yeah. probably be looking for Matt. Yeah. He would be like, okay, guys. Well, I remember <laughs> during COVID when they trapped in Madeira at one point. Yeah, they've been. Oh no, um, the Cape Verde. Cape Verde. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. on seeing that and being very impressed by his sang when that was going on it's just like oh well we're just gonna stay here for a bit <laughs> yeah he's, you know in the apocalypse work out what matt's doing and you'll be all right yeah um so uh why well, am i going down that, that well that oh yeah so the um the evolution of that that sort of old that old um you know that narrative from the book yeah again i'm gonna i'm gonna really credit jordan yeah we always knew the book was a big part of the story yeah but in my, I'd previously initially just envisioned that we might use it in the beginning and then it would just sort of fall away. But as we were kind of, as we were developing the edit, we realized that the passages of the book, certain passages, and again, I'm going to say Jordan realized, Jordan was really the driving force. Jordan really went through that book with a fine tooth comb and just found all these like little passages that were perfect little, like the glue that could bind scenes together or help push the story and actually we used a couple of them to like you know to maybe like to bridge us from a to b or things like that and really tied the story together and i think um it just for well we all feel like really really works to kind of like bring some cohesiveness yeah to the story and it's gives they, you like the gravitas as well with charles dance in the chair oh charles dance like you know i I knew straight away when we were when we were, were kind of like shortlisting our potential voiceover people, and we you know we there were some ambitious names thrown on the table, but for no second that I think we could ever get Charles Dance, and um, you know, a few months later I was sitting in a recording studio with Charles Dance. How was that? Yeah, it was really cool. I was I didn't know what to expect actually, and uh, he just came in. He he's got like kind of a bit of a rock star kind of vibe about him and it was a cool recording studio in london with guitars on the wall and he just he he you know he was really casual i, th I thought he'd have a bit of an entourage he just rocked up i think he had like his driver sitting in a car outside or something i don't know i never met his driver but he just, he was just so nice yeah. just sat down he was really interested in us as people um felt very made us feel all super relaxed he didn't quite understand what we were trying to achieve. It, like he didn't have a real clear idea of what he was doing. It was I think this was all kind of new territory for right. him. But, but he was very accommodating. But he's a pro. Just just got it done. <laughs> just got it done. And and as soon as so he when when we were doing the recordings, he was sitting in a little like recording booth, and I was sitting next to the guy, like the audio engineer, in an, in a separate room. And as soon as he said his first sentence, I think it was even during the test, I knew straight away. I was like, Yeah, that's perfect. That, that must have been a great moment. It was amazing. I was yeah. like, "Yeah, you must have been like, wow, this is actually happening. This is happening, and it's Charles <laughs> Don sitting over there, and it sounds yeah. amazing. He just the his sense of like gravitas and authority, and just he's got that his voice. Just it was just so perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's really really effective. Yeah, it's um, yeah, like I say, it really ties it together, like and gives it this 
cohesive sort of I think we both use the word gravitas and I think it is the right word. I think it does, you know, it does really communicate what you try to do with it. So let's talk about how you got, f- let's just check time because you're, on, a, you're on, a, on the clock a little bit, aren't you? Yeah, good. Um, how'd you get from the pineapple canning factory to... <laughs> <laughs> to doing this? To, to here. I mean, and I've always been quite curious how you, how you washed up in North Devon. <laughs> Um, I guess my filmmaking journey started um, back in South Africa. Uh, I'd I'd been doing a lot of, um, before I started working in the film industry, I'd been doing a lot of odd jobs around the world, but mostly to fund surf trips. Yeah. So I'd worked in Australia, you know, doing laboring. I'd worked in kitchens all around the world, like, you know, washing dishes and a bit of chefing, but not much, just mostly a lot of dishwashing. I was just doing like, you know, manual arbitrary jobs. Um and not taking any of it too seriously. Uh, and then I just finished a big trip with a friend around South Africa, Southern Africa, and I ended up back in Cape Town with no money and a load of my friends. The film industry in South Africa is huge, but it's a, it's a service industry. So it's, it's mostly um, facilitating foreign productions right. coming to shoot in South Africa. And a lot of my friends were involved in the industry. And so I was kind of like drawn to just through their stories of like, it seemed like every day was a different day. Yeah. And it, they always had like, you know, it just seemed like they were doing interesting things. And even though the hours are crazy and all of that, when you're young, it's just like, that was, it just seemed like a really sort of fast paced, exciting industry. Um, and so I sort of blagged my way into a film set as a runner. Right. No, nobody wanted to take me. I think the indus- it was halfway through a season. I was knocking on doors and people were like, nah, sorry. Um, we 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 full up and whatever. So I so I went to one company. I was like, I'll work for free, and so I got given a two day opportunity um, as a runner on set for free. And <laughs> I try to I try to do my best to make a good impression. I think it was a, it was a crazy shoot. In forty eight hours, I worked for forty five hours. Right. <laughs> there was a three hour gap straight in, and and I was trying to make a good impression. So basically, the other two runners who were actually paid, I think they just pulled up deck chairs and just let me do all the work. Right. I was like, oh, you know, like I, Kino. Th- this is <laughs> yeah. I'll do it. 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 And and hobbled off that job, and uh, and then yeah, go, they they gave me another job. And we we always filming surfing growing N- up. No, so that was um I was that was I started working on um commercials as a runner. And then because I was coming in a little bit later, generally if you're going in through the film, if you're going in through the sort of film industry route, you start off as a runner, which a lot of people do for uh, a couple of years before you decide which department you're gravitating towards. Yeah. Because I'd done a whole lot of shitty jobs before, I knew that I had a work ethic. I knew that being a runner just is just really an opportunity to decide if you like the industry. I didn't have any ambitions to stay as a runner. I was like, I want to get into a department. You know, I want to start climbing the ladder kind of thing. Yeah. And I was drawn to the camera department. Um, it just seemed like the cam- camera was the center of it, like the, of whatever was going on. Um, and f- and I I was already, you know, I was already have, had creative sort of ambitions. I'd studied graphic design. I had a creative sort of, you know, eye. So I just seemed like the camera department was the one, I, you know, that, that sort of called to me. So I did a course. In, in South Africa, which is the one course you can do to become a camera assistant. And at the end of the course, there was a film starting and the, the producers had an opportunity to take one trainee. Right. And so they came to the peop- people that ran the course and they said, 
we've got an opportunity. There's one trainee can come on this film because when you finish the course, you have to do 30 days before you can advertise yourself as a camera as a camera assistant. Yeah. So getting that 30 days is quite tough. And the hard thing about the camera department is nobody wants to hire you. The camera department's small. There's usually only two people per camera. And both those jobs are like, if you fuck up, it's major. You like So it's a catch-22. Nobody wants to hire you without experience, but you can't get a job without experience. So, so you have, so you kind of got to, the only thing you've got to your advantage is you can offer yourself for free. Yeah. And I was young. I was like, okay. So, um, I got put forward for this job on this feature film as a, as a trainee, which I did. And I did my 30 days on the film. Right. And I worked with a really good team and, and basically they just, I just slipstreamed them and I did five movies with them. Right. Wow. Back, back to back to back. Amazing. So I just joined their team. You so know, you were straight into the industry. Basically. I was straight in, and I was with a really good team. They were super busy. They were get at the time there was there was feature films happening in South Africa, and that people wanted to be on. And this camera team were the the people that were on them, and so they 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 were they were just going from the one good film to the next. So I worked with the best guys at the time, and it was really good. It was it was really tough. They were really hard. There's, they don't take any shit. They're all ex-military. Yeah. And you quickly, you know, it's a massive hierarchical thing. Well, and also it's just super competitive isn't it it's so, super competitive so you, you can't up, talk back as the before. trainee i'm like the bottom of the ladder like yeah. it was i mean it was, it was hard as well you know being like a sort of they used to call me a surfer boy right <laughs> like, and i'd be like you know and it's just bad it was it was really cool um but also i got to a point where i was like okay i couldn't see myself sticking in that um on that on that path a lot of, if you're stuck in the film industry in that traditional route it takes years to get to a point where you're even doing anything vaguely creative I wasn't I was my job was very not creative as a camera assistant my job was to it was called a clap a to keep film on the camera to work in a dark room to do shitloads of paperwork it's not creative at all I wasn't yeah. I wasn't allowed you're if, a cog I'm a cog if, I, if somebody saw me looking through the eyepiece I would get you know like yeah. my ear clipped right and so I was like, oh, it's going to be like 10 years before I can look through the camera. <laughs> it's going to be another <laughs> 10 years like, at least. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and and uh, I, I, uh, I ended up doing this one movie in Namibia and it was a real tough movie. And I was, I was kind of a little bit jaded with the industry. I also started seeing Rita and my wife and I was just like, oh man, this is tough. Like, do I want to be a wave? Because feature films like, are long processes. Yeah, right. Three months, da da da. So anyway, um, I, I I decided I need a break, and I went I went surfing. I went, we went to Bali, and I caught up with a bunch of mates from Devon, who I'd met from previous travels from 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 North Devon in England. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, like, oh, I don't know. And like they're like, come back to Devon for the summer. And my wife hadn't been to to North Devon yet, so I was like, fuck it, yeah, I, I really miss the place. I love it. You know, I've got really good friends there. So uh, soon after the Bali trip, we kept, we came back to North Devon and just, right. and that's and just started spending more time. And every time I'm in North Devon, I, I just end up staying longer because it's you know. Hey, I, on a day like today, I mean, if you're listening, you probably noticed it got really windy. That's because we are sat on the a veranda of a friend's house overlooking Croyd Bay, and it's it's flat, but it's quite a, quite a scene, isn't it? Beautiful. Yeah, it's so it's so amazing, and I love it. And um, I guess you know it's my chosen home now. So yeah, you don't think you'd go home? Um, no, I think um, you know I love North Devon. I've got kids now. I think you know the older you get, you just kind of lay down your your roots. And, yeah. And you know, this for me, 
when I'm away, I love coming back to North Devon. It's just it's such a great place to live. I find it's, it's close enough to to airports and cities when I need it to be, but it's far enough to be. I, I spend a lot of time, you know, when I'm not shooting, it's often a lot of editing work. I'm, yeah. I can fall into a nice routine here, which involves surfing. None of my friends have real jobs. Yeah. You know, we're. It's all, that kind of place. It's that kind of place. <laughs> uh, so, the, actually, the hard thing is trying to avoid distraction. I've got, I've got to be quite militant with my, with my heart, sort of manage my time, because yeah. you could easily just go do fun stuff every day. But, uh, you know, I just try and, like, you know, I get my surfing, do my hour or two. Um, unless the waves are pumping, then, you know, yeah. I'll spend as long as I can in the sea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a big thing for me, um, sort of back to the sort of film progression was the digital era because when I started shooting, when, when I was camera assisting, it was all 35 millimeter film. There was a real barrier to mm. entry and progression. When I was in, uh, when I was in Devon, um, I actually started working at a surf shop, which I loved. Uh, but it, I did get to a point where I was like, mm, you know, this, this, I started like having this, there was like annoying thing in the back of my head, like back, you know, film and. I needed to do something creative again. I had this like this little voice in my head saying, "You you want to get back onto the creative path." And I, I decided I bought a I bought a camera, another camera, and started le- and a laptop and started learning how to edit. And that was like a big change for me because suddenly I realized, oh fuck, I can just make movies. Right. Whereas you didn't need permission. I didn't need permission before. Yeah. Before you needed quite a a lot of infrastructure to go and make a movie. Yeah. Now you can do it all on your phone. People, you can make a high quality movie. You can sell it shoot it share it <laughs> whatever it's okay. like there's no excuse so yeah. so you know I learned I started learning to edit and the thing that I was drawn to was you know and it's always been a passion and something I'm always going to be you know tr- attracted to surfing yeah so I was like oh well you know I go shoot my friends and surfing and and uh, and started shooting that w- that was what how I learned you know just started shooting friends surfing and then like following their stories and started doing loads of work with um, Andrew Cotton. I went to a trip, I did a trip to Ireland, him and Lyndon Wake were there actually. And, um, and I went and I thought I was just going to go shoot them surfing. But straight away, within like a day or two, I realized, geez, what they were doing was hardcore. I had no idea. They were like missioning. They they were staying in Bandoran in a house, but the coast of Ireland is like, you can find ways, but you need to, you need to work for it. It's not going to come easy. And they were putting in the work. They were up every morning at four or five o'clock in the dark, cold, packing vans, driving. And I was like, fuck, this is the story. Yeah, like yeah. the surfing's kind of like not the story, or what the, how they're getting to the waves. And I was immediately drawn to that side of it. And, and that's what, I guess that's where I started. And I'm, that's what I'm still drawn to. It's like the story behind the story. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what, once you finished selling this one, What's next? I've got a few little ideas on the bubble. Uh, my main concern, my main priority now is actually some time off. Yeah. <laughs> I've been going flat out, um, f- juggling projects, and I, I just, I kind of really feel like I just need to take some time. I've got two five year old twins, and, you know, as much as, much as living here, and I'm, you know, it's, you can find a work life balance. At the end of the day, like work's been a real top priority for me, and I just I just need to spend some time. Like, yeah, bit of downtime after also, six years. A bit of downtime, and also I think it's good to be busy. And I've been flat out, like I I haven't had less than two projects on in five years. Yeah, sometimes four, you know, and it's just it's it's a bit crazy, which is it's amazing, you know, and it's I'm not. Sometimes you're so busy, like watching where your feet are going, you forget which direction you're heading in. And now, because I'm kind of actively deciding, I want to, as much as I love surfing, I do want to start moving into more 
you know, deeper sort of documentary filmmaking. I want to, I've been working with these guys in America that have been shooting with this HBO series, 100 Foot Wave, and it's for me. And I, I worked in another documentary um, a couple winters back about Joey Barton, the Joey Barton story. And it was a real taste for like filmmaking outside of this, you know, you know, this real, the, the, the surf bubble, so yeah. to speak. And I kind of, I, I, that's the direction I see myself heading into. But I just, I just wanted to take some time to kind of really assess down tools and just kind of you know and yeah enjoy the summer yeah man hey well thanks for doing it i know you're on a super tight schedule this morning um and we had we had a few messages back and forth but that's great man thank you thank uh, you I'll, I'll i'll do the links so people can see it currently when's it officially out fifth of may and where can people see it um so well come to docklands film festival <laughs> near san francisco we um we are doing so now for the next for this year we're going to be we're going to be focusing on film festivals we don't have anything lined up in the uk or europe yet but we do have things on the cards yeah we've got a lot of submissions and uh so hopefully we hear back soon yeah yeah so, so i think it'll it'll start people just people will start seeing it around won't they and, and on different bills and stuff yeah hopefully so. i think it's a bit of a snowball effect um i'd say for now just follow us on all the this general social channels and yeah. we'll just keep everybody up to date with events as they unfold but our, yeah our plan is to get it far and wide yeah 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 hey nice one mikey thank you <laughs> thank you matt so there you go that was me and mikey and i hope you enjoyed it just a toll legend day eh, with a passion for life and creativity that is pouring out of him now i hate all those vapid instagrammable life hack quotes that do the round but calvin coolidge was onto something when he said nothing in the world can take the place of persistence talent will not nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent genius will not unrewarded genius is almost a proverb education will not the world is full of educated derelicts persistent and determination alone are omnipotent you know i'm it's a good it's a good quote i think mikey's stories i, I was kind of hesitating there because like i said i'm loath to share those things because i find them in in their own way quite reductive really um but that one did seem quite apposite when it comes to Mikey's story, which is indeed a great example of the power of persistence and how far it can take you. Because let's not forget too that Mikey's career, as he explained, is really the summary of all his experiences. Uh, a very obvious comment, but not everyone, not everybody channels those things as positively as Mikey has. I really liked how when he talked about some of the more workaday elements of his CD, he recognised the value of some of those more soul-destroying experiences. Like I say, an inspirational story on many levels. And I urge you to seek out Savage Waters when you get the chance. Um, okay, housekeeping corner. Well, thanks for the response to the Ewan Wallace episode. I mean, obviously, it was quite a self-indulgent one that, you know, me essentially recording a conversation um, with an old friend of mine who I've not seen for a few years. But I did think that it was of value, particularly as an exploration of friendship. Um, and it was great to see how people responded to it and it was also i've got to be honest lovely to hear from a lot of old friends who listened to it and got back in touch um i've already had a couple of really nice interactions with people i've not seen for a while based upon that so very selfishly again that made it worth it for me um but if you did enjoy it then let me know you can find me um on instagram at we look sideways or you can drop me a line at podcast at we are looking sideways or you can also leave me a comment on substack I'm not really around on much social at the minute. Um, I sort of decided to jump off social 
for a while. Like I left Facebook quite a while ago. I left Twitter a bit ago. Instagram is still sort of hanging on in there. Um, but I've I've taken to sort of deleting it for maybe like five out of seven days a week or, or like checking in a couple of days a week just because I, well, I don't need to explain why I've done that. I mean, it's, it's not good for you, is it? I, I follow somebody called Emma Gannon, who's somebody I greatly admire, who had an, who's got a great um, podcast called Control Alt Delete. She's hugely prolific writer, broadcaster, podcaster. Comes out from a creative feminist slant, I would say, very very bright, very clever. And there was a quote from one of her recent interviews that said something like, "Every time you you, you log on to one of these social accounts, you're basically battling with a lot of highly trained, very intelligent people." whose job is just to keep you on there and get you addicted by um, sparking dopamine and make and getting you wound up. I'm paraphrasing, but it is true. And I certainly recognize that in myself a bit at the minute when I'm on social. So yeah, Substack, back to the point. Um, there is a comment section on Substack. You, you can subscribe to my Substack on my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. It also doubles as my newsletter. Um, every fortnight I send out the 10 things I think are worth sharing every other fortnight I send out a blog from myself or a guest if you like the podcast you'll probably like the Substack. Um, and there's a comment section which I keep meaning to try and you know get people to contribute to so give it a go go and have a look and leave me a comment why not perhaps we could even have a conversation like real communities do because I do I think there is a community out there um, assuming I didn't scare everybody off with the last housekeeping corner um, anyway that's it for this week <laughs> you'll be surprised to hear I don't have a huge amount to say for myself right now another reason why I decided to jump off social and also why I took a week off from the podcast last week just kind of happens like that sometimes I just get sick of the sound of my own voice um I seem to be able to do about six weeks solid on the podcast before I start doing my own head in a bit with it and overthinking things um and this is usually a good indicator that I need to do something else for a little bit so that's what I've been doing I'm sure it'll come back though and it'll be business as usual in the meantime if you enjoyed this episode feel free to share it on social um, like I say you can head to my website www.wearelookingsideways.com you can sign up for the newsletter you can listen to more episodes you can buy some merch you can buy a copy of the book or you can just have a nice time reading the show notes and having a look at what I've been compiling for the last five years and fuck me it's a lot of stuff um, in the meantime I'll be back soon nice one <laughs>